1: The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hello,
2: Chris. Good to talk again. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. I want to start off today, Chris, with a bit of a discussion on interest rates uh, because it's a really important topic and it's an evolving topic. We still have some uncertainty out there about the intentions of the European Central Bank vis-à-vis interest rates. Frankly, as we've discussed, I'm a bit bemused as to why people are even talking about the possibility of the ECB increasing rates any further. But just because that bemuses me doesn't mean the ECB couldn't do it. But every piece of evidence we're getting is just building the case for economic weakness in the euro area. Yesterday, we got industrial production out of Germany, which was extremely weak and one of the things that I noticed in that industrial production figure in Germany was the fact that the pharmaceutical sector, or output from that sector, fell by 9.2%. And I think that resonates with what's happening in that sector here in Ireland at the moment, as we've discussed in the context of the corporation tax shortfall. But Pfizer have just announced some job layoffs in Ireland over the coming months,
1: so uh, there is something interesting happening there. Just one thing on that, in the spirit of our mantra that everything relates to everything else, I was reading some reports about profitability of American companies. And this report was celebrating the fact that the profits recession there is over, which is good news from a, an Irish corporate corporation tax point of view. But a big driver of the profits recession in the United States such as it has been has been that pharmaceutical sector in general and Pfizer was mentioned in particular so clearly the the woes the travails of the pharmaceutical sector are affecting everything S&P 500 profits German industrial production and Irish corporation tax it's all related isn't it Jim?
2: Yeah, it certainly is. That really resonated with me when I was analysing the German industry production numbers. You know, what's, what's happening there certainly resonates here. But the old mantra, Chris, everything affects everything else. Everything is related. We got Eurozone retail sales data also pretty weak. So every piece of evidence suggesting that the Eurozone economy just continues to lose momentum, struggling along the bottom, how you could possibly contemplate Increasing
1: interest rates any further against that background. I just
2: can't figure, to be honest.
1: Well, one thing the ECB will be delighted with this morning is a survey that was out of inflation expectations. Indeed. And they've all gone up. Guess they what? So they if they the want key. an excuse to put interest rates up again, there you have it.
2: But that's largely on the back of energy. And it's also
1: on the back of what inflation has been doing. I mean, frankly, just asking people what their forecasts for inflation are is, is about as relevant as asking you and I what our forecasts for inflation are. But there is a re- there is some relevance to this in that if inflation expectations are rising and they affect the labour market and wages and all that good stuff setting off a spiral, then we do have a problem. Inflation expectations are not unimportant. But I think in the current economic circumstances that you've just outlined there, the economy is very weak in Europe. The ability of employers to grant wage increases is very circumscribed. I think that it. this is one of those instances where we shouldn't place too much weight on these kinds of surveys of inflation expectations. But if the European Central Bank wanted an excuse, and I, expect, I suspect they do to put interest rates up again, or at least keep them where they are for even longer, then there you have it.
2: It's funny, I, I was listening to a Central Banker talk a couple of days ago who was arguing, not of the European variety, who was arguing that the difference between now and the last serious inflationary spike back in the 70s and 80s on the back of the two oil price shocks is that back in that period, um, inflation expectations were really anchored and there was a this just inbuilt, embedded belief that inflation was just going to go higher and remain very high. And the central bank was arguing that this time around, things are very different, that inflation expectations are certainly nothing like as embedded in the system. And notwithstanding that survey of um, inflation expectations in the euro area, um, I still think that is the case. So it, it does remain to be seen, but, you know, I, I, I just would find it so difficult to argue as to why the ECB could possibly go again. And indeed, if the ECB did go again, I think that actually would accelerate the timing of the first interest rate cut, because I think another rate increase certainly would be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the Eurozone economy. In Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia yesterday raised its cash rate by 25 basis points, having held rates at 4.1% for the previous meetings. Um, Rates there are now at the highest level since January 11, the 13th rate rise since May 92. And the basis for this really is that inflation is proving more resilient than the uh, central bank had expected. And also, of course, um, like many other places, service sector inflation is still a little bit on the high side.
1: Did you spot spot the central bank that recently, about two weeks ago, I think it was, maybe 10 days, raised interest rates by a full two percentage points?
2: Uh, Missed that one, Chris. Russia. Russia. Russia's
1: interest rates are now 15%. Right. They've got a big inflation problem there because of their reorienting their economy towards war war production, just spending money like crazy.
2: Uh, and of course, they have a booming economy with consumer spending mad, with massive business sentiment, etc., etc. Not, um, but anyway, that just just shows you the folly of the management of that country at a political level. Um, I, in the context of what we were discussing on the interest rate front, uh, there was a column in the Financial Times by al alarian in recent days, who was talking about the four key global central banks the european central bank the federal reserve the bank of england and the bank of japan whom he was saying are currently in the middle of a timeout okay that's using a sporting analogy Um, and he was arguing that these central banks should particularly the federal reserve should use this timeout to really consider how it operates policy and he identified a number of things that these central banks need to look at and change. You know, he says that rather than data dependency, that central banks need to take a more clear, forward-looking view of the economic context and also take greater account of the appropriate equilibrium interest rate for the economy of tomorrow, not for the economy of today. Have you ever heard
1: anybody say anything like that before?
2: Uh, I have indeed, Chris, and that's why I knew it would... um, it would stroke your ego. That's why I'm mentioning it, okay? Second thing was, he was arguing that they really do need to improve their forecasting techniques and they need to become very clear about the trade-offs involved in achieving inflation targets. Um, And thirdly, he argued that these inflation targets may need to be reviewed with an open mindset. You know, is a 2% inflation target appropriate, for example? And in specific relationship to the Federal Reserve. um, He was saying they need to be careful about communication mishaps, which we have discussed and which has certainly been a feature of Jay Powell in recent times. He says the United States needs to look at the outdated monetary policy framework. It needs to work on seriously restoring its credibility and it also needs needs to enhance accountability. Listen, there's nothing there that we haven't discussed. There's no rocket science there. But I I do think it was a pretty concise, clear um, synopsis of what central bankers should be thinking about at this juncture. And this does matter because um, central bank mistakes at this stage of the cycle
1: you know, could prove pretty calamitous for the world economy over the next couple of years. And they do keep making a balls of communication, as we have discussed so many times. One Federal Reserve Governor only yesterday said that she didn't think that we are at the peak of the interest rate cycle, that they think she thinks the Fed will go again. Uh, I remain to be convinced about that. More importantly, closer to home, at least for me, Uh, We've had this week the chief economist of the Bank of England noting that market expectations for UK interest rates are for a cut round about next August. And he said that looked not unreasonable to him. He didn't say that he thought it was an accurate forecast, but he sort of gave encouragement to those people who think that the next move in UK interest rates will be down. Lo and behold, his boss, the governor of the Bank of England, is out on the airwaves today saying it is far too early to be talking about interest rate cuts. So I do think that there are some very basics of communication skills that these central banks need to be taught. Singing from the same hymn sheet would help people like us, market participants, investors, people who uh, need to form reasonable interest rate expectations. When you have the number one and the number two people in the Bank of England talking past each other, I do think that illustrates the communication problem that you and I, and indeed people like Mohammed El-Aryan, have been talking about for some time.
2: Chris, moving across the Atlantic to the US political system, we, we, we've seen the opinion polls, uh, particularly in the six key swing states, moving very much in favour, uh, at least in five of those of Donald Trump. And Joe Biden's disapproval rating is pretty high The Democratic Party did fare quite well in state and local elections over the last couple of days. But nevertheless, there is a sense within the Democratic Party at the moment, a growing sense, I think, uh, that Biden is not capable of beating Trump in an election. And there are suggestions that um, some Democrats could put themselves forward for the nomination. So a little bit of disquiet on that front. Um, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times um, over the last couple of days, uh, wrote a fantastic piece about the implications for the global economy, for global geopolitics, and indeed for the United States, of a Trump victory. He was talking about the efforts that Trump would make, particularly in a second term, to basically replace the permanent civil servants with Trumpians. Okay, and the playbook there is Erdogan in Turkey or Viktor Orban in Hungary. So, you know what that would do to the standing of the US in, in global geopolitical terms would be absolutely diabolical, in my view, and it's certainly Martin Wool's view. He also talks about the Trump's promises to slap a 10% tariff on all imports into the United States. So um it's <laughs> It's it's not a very edifying prospect.
1: No, those tariffs, of course, are horribly reminiscent of what's called the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1930s, that are widely thought to have, if not actually caused, but certainly contributed to, the Great Depression. Uh, Those tariffs would mean that the World Trade Organization, upon which so many of the rules and regulations of our global trading system rest, would be toast. More generally. The adoption in the United States of autocracy and the rejection of democracy uh, would be a massive geopolitical and economic shock. Uh, it's right, I think, to focus on the narrow economic consequences of those tariffs because they they're relatively straightforward to model and to measure and to arrive at guesstimates. What is harder to estimate or guesstimate? is the consequences of the US becoming an autocracy, a country that has rejected the basic tenets of democracy. And that's what a second Trump presidency would, in my view, and in Martin Wolf's view, more importantly, amount to. And one of the things that Wolf doesn't explore, although he does mention that trust in the united states would collapse he states that and i think that's absolutely right and that would run across a whole host of dimensions interpersonal relationships international relations just governments looking at the united states asking themselves the question do we trust these people anymore and i think the answer to that will always be no and wolf doesn't explore what that might mean but i think it's worth spending a few seconds here thinking about it Because one of the things that capitalism, our economic systems, label them in whatever way that you want, mixed economies, capitalist economies, social democratic economies, they all rest at the end of the day on several key factors, key uh, parts of their foundations. But perhaps the key part is trust. And that relates most obviously to contracts. Do you trust the person with whom you are contracting? Do you trust the person, the institution, the company, the government, the business, that is signing the the contract uh, for the trade agreement, the exchange of goods and services, various bits and pieces of the economy rest on the existence and uh, maintenance of trust? I read a book recently by Brad DeLong uh, about the essentially economic history of the world. And he uh, talked about sub-Saharan Africa in the context of global economic development and how countries like South Korea and others went from being quite primitive uh, economies, uh, less developed economies, to being super soar away star economies by adopting a certain set of principles, doing certain things, going through a menu of choices that economies can do and with a bit of luck will get you to what economists call the efficient frontier and become well-developed, high rates of growth economies. And people speculate as to why sub-Saharan Africa, despite having these very obvious choices available to it, why don't they develop? Why do they seem stuck in this low economic growth, poverty trap? And of the factors that people seem to think are important in sub-Saharan Africa are the absence of trust. That's because um Again, trust is such an important element, necessary, required element of economic growth. And the speculation, and it is only speculation, because obviously we don't know for sure um, A whether it is trust in sub-Saharan Africa, Africa that is absent, and, and if it is absent, why there isn't any. And the speculation amongst some historians, some anthropologists, is that these are societies which have a very low level of trust because of slavery. And that there is a kind of collective memory embedded in these cultures that mean that people don't trust each other going all the way back to the days when people of the same group the 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 same village would be treating with each other uh, talking about something exchanging something talking uh, doing the stuff that people do in their normal daily lives always unsure whether um just behind the people they were talking to are a bunch of people about to cart them off to slave ships uh, arranged by the people in their village and stuff like that. As I say, it's speculative um, and I'm reluctant to, to go into it too much because it is obviously a hugely sensitive area about which these historians know more than me. But this absence of trust in sub-Saharan Africa, I think, is interesting um, and relevant. I think they, they are on to something there. And I think if trust, therefore, were to disappear in the United States, it would be catastrophic for economic growth potentially. I think it would be a real, real problem and much bigger than a 10% tariff on US imports. I think a Trump presidency for the global economy, if trust was to collapse in the United States, that is so important for so many aspects of the world economy, not least the Irish economy, Jim. We've talked before about how the Irish economy can be seen as highly correlated with the US. I don't think a Trump presidency would be good news for Ireland because I do think that Wolf is right it would be a very different presidency to the first one. People might look back and say Trump's first presidency didn't actually amount to very much. He said a lot but did very little and didn't do much harm. Well, he did. He did do a bit of harm. Uh, but the the thing that he will do now is not repeat the mistakes that he made as he sees them on in his early presidency and do basically nothing. He, on day one, he's going to replace all the great institutions of state or at least the people that run them. And turn the Justice Department and the Internal Revenue Service in particular, and maybe even the FBI, the CIA, into his own personal fiefdom, running them at his own whim. And I think that is very sinister. And it'll have implications for all sorts of things, maybe even corporation tax, something that you and I talk about all the time in an Irish context. uh, That'll be up for grabs as well. There'll be so many different things, so many ways in which the second Trump presidency won't be like the first.
2: Yeah, and of course there will be the legacy issue as well because you know it will be, uh, he's, if, if he were to be elected, it will be his final term, so that there is the the legacy issue and what he might try and do. Uh, so I would absolutely share all of that pessimism. Um, I if you look at what's happening at a global geopolitical level at the moment, with the increased polarization and fraction that we're seeing around the place, China versus everybody else, but particularly versus the United States, uh, you know, the Russians, what they're at. So there was never a time, I think, when the West need to be, needed to be more united and singing off the ha- same hymn sheet in the face of these global geopolitical challenges. And yet it has been fractured and it will be fractured a lot further. And, you know, the role of the United States as the global, peacekeeper, some people would dispute, I believe it, um, would be seriously undermined. And I think Europe would be the big leader because we don't have much in the way of political leadership in
1: Europe. I think you mean the big loser.
2: Big loser, sorry. I beg That's pardon. quite
1: all right. Yeah, um, yeah and Xi Jinping different. and Putin would, be, would feel that they've been given a free reign even more than they have at the moment to do what they like with all sorts of sinister implications. And Wolf doesn't talk about Taiwan directly in this way. But I know that intelligence sources around the place are saying that Xi Jinping has issued an instruction to the uh, Chinese armed forces to be ready for a Taiwan invasion by 2027. Uh, Of course, that doesn't mean he's going to do it, but it's certainly if it's true, and I see no reason to doubt these intelligence sources, um, it would seem likely that uh, we are in for big trouble, um, particularly if Trump is president. And the final thing I'd say about that, of course, that we haven't mentioned, but Martin Wolf does, is that the United States will become a climate change denying country. And all of Joe Biden's great work in accelerating the green transition in the United States and therefore the rest of the world will get undone. And so that in and of itself, even if any of this other stuff turns out to be speculative and doesn't come to pass, that in and of itself, I think, would be a catastrophe. So there's nothing, nothing good in a Trump presidency, in my view, Jim.
2: No, you just, you could just imagine what he would do to the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, he would absolutely fill it. Which is I, the green?
1: It's misnamed. It's the Green Agenda Act. It, for Biden. Is, yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, it was called that purely for political reasons. But um, I, I repeat, just in case there was any doubt about my um, the mistake I made there, that Europe certainly, I think, will be the big loser out of a Trump presidency. So, I think the the, then, the risk
1: that Europe is running at the moment with its very low growth, nothing much happening yeah. environment is that the rest of the world is regarding increasingly regarding Europe as an irrelevance.
2: Yes, indeed. And, and on top of that, where is the political leadership? Uh, Chris, looking at financial markets at the moment, uh, bond yields, US tenure is down at 4.55%. A few weeks ago, we were talking about it breaching 5%, which it did briefly. Um, back down significantly, but I I think most tellingly um, oil prices have come back down again. Uh, Brent Crew trading today at just under $81 a barrel, and yet the situation in the Middle East, um, Gaza specifically, continues to deteriorate. Uh, There's certainly every possibility that Hezbollah is just going to get much more involved in this, one assumes, um, in, in which case the whole thing could really escalate in a very, very serious way. And yet markets, very relaxed. Oil prices, very relaxed. What is going on here?
1: I think that it's multifactorial. As we always say, there's no one explanation for the fall in oil prices. I think the oil market is noticing economic weakness around the place. We've talked about that. So that affects oil demand. Uh, I think that it is markets in general, the oil price in particular, is taking a view opposite to the one that you just expressed there, Jim, which is that the markets think that the risks of escalation are falling. And it's a very hard-headed, you could say cynical, you could say cruel, uh, you could say grotesque um, view of, of what is happening because the markets, I think, implicitly are saying that because Israel is laying waste to Gaza in its attempts to destroy Hamas, is showing the kind of military resolve and capability that both Hezbollah and Iran don't want to face. And so Hezbollah and Iran, they're going to poke, but they're not going to confront Israel and perhaps America. That may or may not be the right analysis, but I think that's what that is saying, is, is that the Israeli response to these attacks uh, has been such that Iran and Hezbollah don't want to get involved because Hezbollah don't want Lebanon ripped apart in the way that it has been in the past. And that's its base country, of course. Iran has got an 84-year-old leader and a population that is, shall we say, protesting now and again about all sorts of different things. It's not the most stable of countries. And the last thing a country that is going to have a big transition to a new leader, a population that is protesting about this, that, and the other, the last thing it will want will be a major war. And both Hezbollah and the Iranians don't want what's happening in Gaza to be happening to them. And so you could argue, as I say, it could be completely wrong. It is grotesque and and uh, awful thing to perhaps contemplate, but the markets are saying what's happening in Gaza is uh, very instructive for the Iranians and for Hezbollah in that they're telling them what will happen if they do get involved. So the likelihood is that they won't get involved because they're signaling that they won't, Hezbollah in particular, so far at least. All of this could change on a sixpence. But I think if you think these things through, that's why the oil price is at a three-month low. And if this thing was threatening to escalate in any kind of serious way, particularly with the, if the Iranians were thinking of getting involved, the oil price would be well north of $100 a barrel. So it's been going down rather than up. As I say, that could change in a heartbeat. But at the moment, the markets are taking a very hard-headed view about A, what's happened, and B, what that means for happen, what is going to happen next.
2: Right. Evolving story. Uh, Chris, finally, I just want to refer back to the last podcast we did on the identity politics and identity wars The reaction has been kind of interesting. Um, As we were doing the podcast the other day, something struck me that I meant to come in and say, and I didn't get a chance to say it. Um, Are we just caught up in a social media bubble here? And is the real world very different? And certainly there was some of that feedback from some listeners about that podcast, uh, that basically we were exaggerating the significance of it, that it was a little bit of a social media bubble. And that same people basically
1: still rule the roost. Um, Could be, but I don't think so. I could be wrong. I'll always be the first to admit that. But I can understand why somebody would say, look, this is not impacting me and my life. This is not impacting anybody's life that I know. You're just involved in these culture wars, which which take place online, on Twitter. And it doesn't, as you say there, Jim, impact anybody's day-to-day existence. I'm afraid I disagree. Uh, because I think it impacts us in all sorts of different ways. We've had communications from other people who get, have given us direct examples in private emails, so I won't name them, and um, keep things private. Um, that's a way of encouraging people to communicate with us because we will always maintain client confidentiality, as it were. But we've had civil servants contact us and tell us about the things that are going on in government departments with respect to these culture wars. Jaw-dropping stuff, actually again, I won't go into details, for fear of identifying the individuals concerned. We've had other people from the private sector talking about how it is impacted on their working lives, these kinds of culture, identity, woke type things. So not everybody agrees with those that say it's just a social media bubble. Um, the thing for me that I think it impacts all of our lives the most is, I, as I said in the podcast, I think that part of and it is only part, but an important part of the rise of things like Donald Trump, Trumpism, and Brexit here in the UK, are a response to all of this culture war nonsense. So to the extent that Donald Trump is the yin to these culture war yang stuff, these identity politicians, these identity warriors, they, uh, Donald Trump sets up a false opposition or to the the stuff that's coming out of all of these different variety of sources now, not just American universities. Um, He and people like Nigel Farage and other right-wing politicians are saying, I am the people that will defend your rights against these people that are trying to attack you. I think that's false. I think it's wrong. And I don't think that they are the right response, but they are a response. And so the fact that Donald Trump and Nigel Farage and so many others are affecting our daily lives in all sorts of different ways, and could do so in an even bigger way in the case of Trump going forward. It means that this stuff is real it 's having real consequences, and I think that we we can observe them on a daily basis. but I totally understand that people don 't want to confront this stuff; people find this stuff you know a turn off to be to be quite honest, but I think it 's important to keep it in context, therefore. Um, And for people like us and other people to say gently, politely and uh, constructively where we think that this stuff is going wrong. And that's all that we're doing with the conversations and the writings that we've been doing.
2: Yeah, Chris, I I have to say I 100 percent agree with you because um, I really appreciated those comments that were saying they were surprised that two of us getting involved in this stuff, um, that it's not a huge issue. Uh, it, It caused me to think about it, question it. But I reached exactly the same conclusion as you have just expounded there, that I think it is very real. I think anybody who doesn't recognize how real it is, isn't really living in the real world or is not aware of what's going on. I I just see it all over the place. And the responses we got from, you know, unnamed sources uh, would certainly vindicate what we've been saying. Um, I think it's a huge issue. And if you talk to people in cities like San Francisco, which I do an awful lot, you really realize just how damaging and real all of this stuff is. So I think we will keep talking about it. Um, Not every podcast. Not every, obviously not every podcast, but but I do think when we see stuff happening, it's incumbent on us to stand up and say, stop, enough is enough. Listen, Chris, on that note, we'll stop. Uh, great to talk again I look forward to our next podcast and um, I am off to Waterford now over the next couple of nights I'm emceeing events in Dungarvan and Waterford City uh, commemorating Waterford's last League of Ireland title 50 years ago and also the FAI Cup victory in 1980 Is that so, the game that um, you play with
1: funny sticks? <laughs> I, I said Waterford Football Club okay I, you didn't That's use hurling the... Chris that's hurling oh, Sorry forgive me Jim Good luck. Take it easy.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.